Two of the top commentators in compliance get together. They talk compliance, of course. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to the newest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network, Two Gurus Talk Compliance, where I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Christy Grant Hart, as we talk compliance and review some of the other top commentators in compliance as well. We will consider all things compliance, corporate ethics, ESG governance, and whatever else is on our minds or on the minds of other experts in our field. This week, Christy and I take a deep dive into several very interesting matters, the SAP enforcement action. We look at a very rare congressional bipartisan effort around forced labor in China. We take two looks at the McDonald's decision from the Delaware courts and its fallouts, as well as an appearance from Florida Man. First, a word from our network sponsor, Ethico. In the intricate world of ethics and compliance, each second is precious. And slow case closures are more than just delays, they're missed opportunities. Enter Ethico. Our solution revolutionizes case management, cutting case closure times in half, and turning every challenge into a chance for improvement. Imagine a workspace where efficiency and compliance coexist harmoniously. Don't just dream of faster resolutions, make it your reality. Visit ethico.com slash cpn today to book a demo and dive into our exclusive white paper by Tom Fox, 2023, the year in compliance. Empower your team with the tools they deserve. Welcome to the Two Gurus Top Compliance Podcast with me, Christy Grandhart. I'm here with the one and only Tom Fox, and this week we're covering corporate compliance officer or potential compliance officer liability in light of recent cases. The first shots fired against ESG and DEI in proxy battles, the DOJ's puzzling behavior in the SAP enforcement action, and Florida man's bizarre following of a TikTok trend that landed him in jail. But first, Tom, how's your week been? And what do you think is the most interesting development? Well, I am actually in Florida. And ah, how many Florida men have you come across so far? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I hope I don't become a Florida man. <laughs> well, um, we're excited for your tales from Florida by the time you get back. So it's nice to see you in Florida. Um, and uh, hopefully you'll have a really good trip there. Indeed. So uh, let's first start. Up, yes, I want to talk about, I'm going to do it in a couple of different ways uh, based on a couple of different articles, but I'm going to start with the um, article that um, uh, about the most recent and indeed the first case to interpret the duty of oversight for a corporate officer from the Delaware court. And that involves Segway. Uh, many people will recall that company for the uh, motorized transport. And their president uh, were sued. The comp uh, company lost uh, quite a bit of stock value. And of course, the inevitable shareholder suit was filed. And uh, the court uh, first said, I think correctly so, that the uh, McDonald's duty, which flows from Caremark, is one of the highest duties there is because uh, it's basically business judgment. And if you take information in, even if you make an incorrect call or make a mistake, that's not going to violate your duty of oversight. Your duty of oversight requires you to have a, a reporting system so that you get the information and then do something if you get that information. Now, the do something can be decided to do nothing. 
and or it can be taken action. So it's a high burden. And the court found that the president did not violate her duty of oversight. So um, that part was interesting. And um, we have both seen an expansion of Caremark cases, I think starting in about 2015 or 2016, but maybe it was 2017 with Blue Blah Ice Cream, and then Boeing uh, and a couple of other cases really uh, brought Caremark more more to the forefront and prominent prominence. But in those cases, we literally had boards, in the case of Bluebell, a food product company with no food safety committee on the board, no one even looking at it. And in Boeing, we had uh, the board being told by management after not one but two crashes of the 737 MAX, don't worry, be happy. And the board uh, didn't do anything to gather their own information, even though I think it was pretty clear management was, you know, outright lying to them. And then we had last year, uh, we talked about the McDonald's decision, which was um, in my part of the world, one clear legal truism is bad facts make bad law. Mm. And in McDonald's, we had a huge case around sexual harassment and sexual assault, including uh, allegations against the CEO and uh, the head of HR, which McDonald's called the chief people officer. And he was alleged to have not only uh, covered up uh, sexual harassment and assault, but engaged in both. So it was as bad a fact as you could get. Uh, and the court created a duty of oversight uh, flowing from Caremark. And so um, many of us and two people on this podcast explicitly wondered aloud what that would mean for corporate compliance officers. And now we have one answer. And the answer is it's the answer is not, quote, not much because it is much. But the answer is if you have a reporting system and if you get red flags, uh, you have to respond to those red flags. And so uh, I don't find this opinion inconsistent with the duty. And I, I don't think there were any naysayers around the um, McDonald's original McDonald's decision, but it came out just after the DOJ had created the CCO oversight requirement for DPAs and MPAs, not oversight of certification. So we wondered how this was going to put additional pressure on uh, CCOs, and now we've seen one answer. I think it's important to note, and I feel like this this cons- this decision was consistent with the underlying um, original decision. But also, Christy, um, the thing I would, for our non-lawyer listeners, the courts ebb and flow on doctrines, and they ebb and flow on one, whether it's a tort doctrine or whether it's a Delaware court talking about a board of directors or officer's obligation. So it is not unusual to get decisions that may on face seem inconsistent, but in reality, they are consistent and different judges come to different conclusions. And when you have a trial to the court, like you do in shareholder cases in Delaware, uh, you're certainly going to have a different perspective from, from each judge. So I didn't find this, this case um, earth shattering, but because it was the first one after the creation of the duty, I certainly thought it was something that uh, every CCO and indeed corporate officer should study so that they can fulfill their obligations. Did you have any thoughts maybe differently on it? 
I mean, I think that um, I think that there was a lot of hand wringing, as I think we talked about that um, that people were very concerned that this was going to be the floodgates of litigation, of maybe even shareholder action, of bringing these suits. Um, I think that it is uh, smart jurisprudence. I think that there is good writing around it. And I think that it's going to be uh, nicer that compliance officers aren't going to suffer the way that we considered that they might. Um, and I think they should sleep easier at night, genuinely. Um, Christy, what are the six hottest letters <laughs> in corporate America? Well, they may be cooling the six hottest letters in corporate America, Tom. So we are going to talk about some of the backlash against uh, ESG and DEI. So for those of you who are not in the middle of the alphabet soup today, ESG stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance, and DEI stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, the two acronyms frequently spoken together in certain media and politicians' circles as woke corporate initiatives. So the activist shareholders are bringing proposals, and this is from a Law.com article titled First Shots Fired in 2024 Proxy Battle Over ESG and DEI. So this article looks at the shareholder proposals filed to evaluate or stop ESG and DEI programs at corporations um, and the public pressure to do the same. So this was actually really interesting to me. Um, the activist shareholders are bringing proposals at places like John Deere. So Deere and Company, maker of farm equipment and John Deere brand tractors, that great green and yellow. Uh, the shareholders are arguing that Deere's ESG-related initiatives are contrary to the core business run by its customers. So, for instance, if uh, Deere is advocating for creating wind and solar power, that requires land, which may then not be agricultural anymore, removing the need for the Deere tractors. Uh, so the center that filed that proposal is planning similar shareholder proposals at ExxonMobil, Conoco, and General Motors. Well, how's it going so far? Not too well for them. So EY reviewed the results of anti-ESG initiatives and found that only 2% of shareholders typically voted uh, against those programs. And that there is no doubt that ESG is currently under the microscope, though, as a, uh, a recent Wall Street Journal article that I almost used highlighted the move to words like sustainability and corporate responsibility to avoid that ESG moniker. Uh, the Law.com article also tackles shareholder proposals against DEI initiatives, and that also includes John Deere. Uh, there's a newly filed uh, proxy statement that asks the board and to commission an audit looking for the effect of the company's DEI policies on, quote, civil rights, non-discrimination and return to merit, unquote. Uh, the article notes that companies have been weighing the risks and, uh, of a lack of diversity within their workforce with the legal and reputational risk of aggressive DEI programs that favor underrepresented groups. So actually, the, the article's tone is actually pretty positive for the future of ESG and DEI as more of these shareholders initiatives fail. Um, and institutional investors with large shareholdings are typically in favor of ESG and DEI programs. So these small shareholders are less likely to succeed in this. But regardless, ESG and DEI are definitely taking a beating in the press, in politics, and at many companies in this spotlight. So ESG and DEI were, in fact, the six hottest letters in the English language in the last couple of years, certainly in our world. But we're now seeing articles, not just in the Wall Street Journal, but the New York Times and Law.com talking about the shift from using these letters to talking about this in a different way. Tom, do you think that this backlash is short-term, long-term? Is it going to stop these programs? What, what do you think? 
So I think it's definitely short term. Uh, the reason I say that, Christy, is properly seen, I believe uh, ESG is about business process. And that although each letter has certain components under it, whether it's the E, the S, or the G, it's about having an overall business process that looks at each one of these in a holistic way that was not done previously. Now, you can take it um, a different approach, which, which, which is what the Department of Justice did in 2020 with the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, where the first time the DOJ said chief compliance officers and a corporate compliance function must have access to all data silos in a company. And that's what ESG is. Somebody, whether it's a head of sustainability, whether it's a head of ESG, whether it's a board corporate, uh, excuse me, a board committee, whatever it is, they are for the first time having access to data across every letter and every program under ESG. And I think it will only make corporations stronger. It will only make corporations better because for the first time you have a holistic view, you'll have better risk management, and you'll have more efficient business processes because you have better corporate governance. So I see it as a corporate governance business process approach. And for that reason, I think it's around to stay. Uh, the, the naysayers and magma hat wearing doomsayers are just dead wrong. And, um, their proclivities for, uh, you know, discrimination are well known. So uh, corporations see benefits to it. And if it benefits a corporation, they're going to continue to do it. It really doesn't matter what they call it. Absolutely. Well, let's go back to oversight again, since that's really what we've been talking about. we got a couple of themes on the program today. Oversight is one of them. So, Tom, what do you want to take on this next uh, McDonald's review? So this next McDonald's review uh, was a very interesting article. Um, from some lawyers at Hughes, Hubbard, and Reed. And this came out before the uh, decision we referenced in our first story. But what they talked about was, uh, and I know these lawyers, and they focus uh, some of their practice on sanctions and export control. And so they took a look at sanctions and export control at the board level based upon um, the McDonald's case, but that's just Caremark. So the obligations of boards of directors um, have increased because of uh, the greater ubiquitousness, if I think that's ubiquity? a word. Ubiquity uh, of export <laughs> control cases. And, you know, you, you have been sounding that horn for at least the last year uh, and telling our listeners that, look, the DOJ says it's coming. And as recently as last week, I think we had an article from the Wall Street Journal where they said FCPA level penalties are about to come down the pike on export control. That means boards of directors need to sit up and take notice. I understand being on a board can be a very challenging in this day and age. You have to have compliance. You have to have export control sanctions. You have to have AI. You have to have data privacy. You've got to have a lot of different expertises on the board. But I think the, the point of the article that for me drove home the, uh, the, the best point was boards need to have visibility and export control. Now, if I could maybe flip it to the head of export control, they absolutely love it because they're telling me and have told me literally or have told me over the past year that literally for the first time, they are in front of the board. 
because boards read the newspaper. Boards read, we, uh, reads, read about the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. Mm-hmm. Boards read about the Modern Slavery Act. And they are well aware that the company could be put at both reputational and financial risk if they don't look at that. So uh, export control is another risk. And the more board oversight you have over risk, I think the better your company is going to be run because once again, you have one group or groups that um, have the whole picture or should have the whole picture and can manage the risk appropriately. So Tom, I thought it was interesting that they basically said, listen, if you board members are not paying attention or ignoring red flags for export control, you are potentially going to be in violation of the Care March slash McDonald's and the duty of oversight. Do you think, and that was really the framing, right? Because these lawyers do export control. Do you think that that's true with basically every compliance issue or are there some that really stick out more? Well, I think when people start talking about FCPA style damages, um, boards need to wake up. And if they're doing business overseas, whether they're importers or exporters, uh, they need to have a risk management plan in place. Now, that plan could be to have the head of export control report to them on a more timely basis or on a regular basis. But they need to start overseeing and pre- performing their duty of oversight. Well, I love that. And, and you know, you were just talking about uh, Uyghur and forced labor and the importance of those modern slavery statements. And we are going to tackle that again from the Wall Street Journal. There's an article called Enforcement of China Forced Labor Import Ban Needs Much Stronger uh, Enforcement, says U.S. lawmakers. So this is one of my favorite topics, as you know, and it's the important work being done to stop forced labor, especially in China. So the bipartisan leaders of an influential congressional committee overseeing the Chinese labor practices wrote a letter to the Homeland Security Secretary and the Attorney General and just happened to publish it also in the Wall Street Journal. So the letter has many requests and observations, chief of which is that the law banning the import of most goods from the Xinjiang region in China simply isn't doing enough. So Customs and Border Protection have detained shipments worth $2.2 billion under the law. It's quite a bit. But there are many loopholes, and this letter was meant to take a look at them. So actually, I didn't know about some of these loopholes, Tom, which I found really interesting. Uh, for instance, there is a de minimis provision that allows packages valued at $800 or less to be sent directly to U.S. consumers with little security, uh, scrutiny from the customs folks. And that doesn't really sound like a problem because an $800 or under package is going to be a big nightmare for customs to look at uh, because they've had 1 billion packages entering the U.S. on that route last year. That's a lot. But two clothing companies are accounting for one third of that billion shipments. And as you know, Tom, cotton is a major focus of those bans. So this loophole is highly significant. Uh, The lawmakers are urging the Department of Justice to increase criminal prosecutions of those who profit from the use of the Uyghur forced labor and to create a task force to combat the problem. As you know, currently, really, the punishments are keeping the goods out of the country and there's not much else going on there. So I love this bipartisan committee. They're they're my favorite part of the government right now. Um, Do you think that the DOJ is likely to respond to the calls for criminal enforcement? Is that is the attorney general going to pay attention? And uh, more importantly, should compliance officers be watching this even more closely? I'm going to have to start with nearly what you ended with, which was the bipartisan nature of this. Uh, It warms my heart to see our government work. Um, 
especially on an issue so near and dear to both of our hearts. But leaving that aside, I still want to focus on Congress, Christy, because I found it so interesting that, you know, this is not Elizabeth Warren. Uh, this is not AOC. This is not someone getting on uh, their soapbox. This is a gr bipartisan group of Congress people who are saying we as a country need to do better. And um, I, I just can't recall very often where Congress says we as a country need to crack down on this. Obviously, they did when they passed the FCPA. That was a long time ago. And um, so it, it just it strikes me or uh, not strikes. Me, that's not the right word. It it I found it incredibly interesting that this initiative comes out of Congress. I think the DOJ will respond. And I think that uh, Congress will pass additional uh, regulations. And whether you believe this is uh, some type of foreign policy, uh, it is. And it's foreign policy based on human rights coming out of the U.S. Congress. And the, even saying that boggles my mind that we would actually be talking about this. But I think it's a, it's a great development. And um, I can't wait to see more of it from a bipartisan Congress. Watch this space. So from China to China, Tom, over to you with our second theme, which is China. What are we looking at? Yeah, this um, article, I think, came from the Financial Times. And now that may be wrong. Uh, but the point is of the article was that China has inculcated and incorporated anti-corruption into basically Communist Party law, which means law in China, and that the Chinese government has now seen the invidiousness of corruption in their country, not that they're going to stop doing it outside China, but they've seen the impacts, the financial impacts. Uh, the Chinese real estate market is completely in the tank. The stock market is in the tank. Financial institutions are basically underwater because the assets they're holding are so devalued. But interestingly, it's impacting the Chinese military. And one of the lessons the Chinese have drawn from the Russian invasion of Ukraine was the Russian military was so corrupt that mm. they were basically either just taking the money for uh, goods that were supposed to be purchased and keeping it, or they were buying substandard goods, keeping the, uh, the difference, or uh, even worse, and Russian soldiers were not getting the materials they needed to conduct their war, uh, that they were prosecuting it, they are prosecuting against Ukraine. And I think the Chinese government looked inwardly, and I can't say that they've told us they have a problem, but this tells me they think they did, or they think they do. And I have to applaud any government that says we're going to fight corruption, whether it's a communist government or not, uh, whether, you know, it's not red China that we were fighting in the 60s, um, and they may be a foe, they may be a competitor, maybe somewhere in between, but them recognizing the invidiousness of corruption to their own economy, that to me, Christy, is a huge step forward. Well, interesting that so the article was written by Reuters. And one of the things in the article that it noted was that China has actually moved up 
uh, in a good way, uh, the uh, Corruption Perceptions Index score by six. The United States has gone down the wrong way. but it's interesting that, that China's actions have and activities have truly changed global perception, at least to a certain degree. Do you think that things are different now? Uh, you've been doing this a long time. Well, um, I think the Chinese government thinks things are different. And they see something that is concerning enough to them that they are taking action uh, internal to China. We'll take it. We'll take any any win we can get in the corruption fight. So that's good stuff. Um, and so let's let's shift gears out of China and come to South Africa, Indonesia, and a host of other African countries. So it is the latest blockbuster FCPA enforcement action. We're always happy to see those around here. This one is against SAP, also sometimes called SAP. I'm going to call it SAP, and it is a doozy. So the article I'm focusing on uh, about this, there were proliferation, but I really wanted to focus on Michael Volkov's take on it. So he did a three-part article, and I'm going to talk about his points in part three. Now, SAP paid $220 million because between 2013 and 2018, it made improper payments to officials at state-owned entities in South Africa and Indonesia to secure and retain software and professional service contracts with those entities. Now, those bribes were prosecuted by the DOJ. Um, They were made directly through or through third-party intermediaries. Amazing, right, Tom? We've never heard that before. Took the form of cash, political contributions, luxury goods, and shopping trips for government officials and their family members. Uh, SAP made off with about $100 million in profits. Can I just make a side note here that this is between 2013 and 2018 and the SEC action I'll talk about in a moment was 21 to 22, 2021 to 22. When we do training, the number of people who say, oh, that would never happen. You can't take luxury trips with a spouse and go on shopping. Yes, it is. It is still happening. Look at this, people. Okay. So the SEC had a resolution in here as well, covered by covering conduct in Malawi, Uh, Tanzania, Ghana, and Kenya uh, related to bid rigging and corrupt payments to those government officials between 2014 and 18, and in Azerbaijan with uh, improper gifts to the government officials with the state-owned oil company. That's the 21 to 22. So Mr. Volkov's article uh, uses the word puzzling. He says that these resolutions from DOJ are puzzling, and I'm really excited to get your take on this, Tom. So he notes that the DOJ recently has begun walking back at least in action, on its positions regarding targeting recidivists with higher fines. So he notes that the SAP resolution totaling that $220 million was actually far below what should have been paid since SAP had previous enforcement actions by the SEC in Panama and the DOJ relating to Iranian sanctions violations. So instead of heavy penalties, the case featured a significant reduction in fine, deferred prosecution agreement, Our favorite, no monitor, no corporate monitor, and no individuals that have been identified for prosecution. So, Tom, here's the controversial and fascinating quote from Volkov's article. It says, quote, DOJ should have acted with a bang. Instead, it closed out this case with a whimper. Do not kid yourself. DOJ is turning its focus and pulling back. DOJ is pulling punches. And the implications of this change in strategy is not fully understood. Unquote. Agree or disagree? Well, I disagree. Okay. And I disagree for several reasons. Uh, First of all, I find this enforcement action consistent with enforcement action starting in December 2022, that being ABB, which was a third time recidivist Mm -hmm. and um, had a fabulous result 
for reasons that were, I thought, very well documented in the settlement uh, documents, the DPA. Then we had Albemarle, which you and I've talked about, talked about extensively on this podcast. And once again, we had uh, ubiquitous worldwide bribery schemes with, a, I thought, a stunning uh, result from Albemarle. And I find that to be uh, true once again with SAP. It's not that the DOJ's pulling punches. It's what are they telling us? And I think they are communicating several things with this settlement agreement. Um, they first, I took a very deep dive into this case. The um, SAP did not self-disclose. That lack of self-disclosure in my calculations cost them anywhere between 110 and $90 million in additional discounts under the current corporate enforcement policy, which has a, available a discount of up to 75% off the low end of the sensing range. They did not receive that because they didn't self-disclose. The message to me is self-disclose. You, you can get some great benefits. But let's take a look at what SAP did to get this result. Um, they extensively cooperated with the Department of Justice. Uh, they didn't do the super double secret Kenneth Polite need for speed um, cooperation. They just did the regular extensive cooperation, which is what's required under the corporate enforcement policy. But they also did the following. The remediation can be grouped as follows. They performed a, a root cause analysis, a risk assessment, and a gap analysis. And you and I would probably say, well, of course they did. That's what you're supposed <laughs> to do. But apparently many companies don't start with a root cause analysis with the following step, Christy. They tied the root cause analysis to the remediation. They tied the gap analysis to the remediation. And then uh, after they did the gap analysis and root cause, they did a risk assessment and built their program around those three uh, components of information. Number two, they greatly enhanced the compliance function at SAP. They increased the budget. They uh, increased the um, headcount. They restructured the Office of Compliance to ensure adequate stature independence and direct access to uh, senior leadership. Uh, they put in the appropriate policies and procedures and enhanced investigation and reporting. They completely changed their sales model. They eliminated third-party sales uh, commission model globally and prevented all sales commissions for public sector contracts in high-risk markets. And finally, data analytics. Here, SAP expanded its data analytics capability to cover over 150 companies. Uh, I have worked um, in large corporations and had to deal with SAP for years because they're the biggest ERP software company in the world. And uh, they obviously have a huge um, uh, sales operation across the globe. And so bringing in data analytics, uh, I think the DOJ is communicating to us uh, as they did um, with Albemarle, the importance of data analytics and data-driven compliance. There was a lot of discussion around holdbacks and not clawbacks, but holdbacks. And it was only 109,000 in total holdbacks uh, made 
but SAP got a dollar for dollar credit and the DOJ made clear they approved of that and they wanted us uh, to be uh, um, also aware of that. Uh, they did uh, cooperate, as I said, extensively, uh, and the lack or the mist between 90 and 110 million in discounts was a clear message to self-disclose. So I don't think the DOJ is pulling punches. I don't think the DOJ is pulling back. I think the message is clear that if you find yourself in these situations, and this was bad, and if you read the facts, you're just going to get madder and madder and madder and madder. And I understand Mr. Volkoff being upset with this, but I think there's a lot for the compliance professional to study in this. And I think the DOJ is rewarding the conduct that it wants to see. And that starts with self-disclosure. Of course, it means cooperation. But how you remediate is equally important. But it gives companies... Um, hope that you can make a comeback and you can make a significant discount. SAP had no, um, um, because there was no self-disclosure, the self-disclosure came from the South African press reporting on bribery and corruption by SAP, the South African officials. And so SAP was in it and uh, they had to do the best thing they can. But ABB was a three-time loser. And look Erickson what they got. earlier too? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then Albemarle. Once again, worldwide uh, bribery schemes with uh, a compensation system that was set up that looked like it was you know, set up to pay bribes, and look what they were able to get. So I think the DOJ is clearly communicating to this, uh, to us, what they want and what they expect. And if you meet those expectations, uh, your self-disclosure will be met with a great reduction in your overall uh, fine and penalty. All right, Thomas Spoken disagrees with Michael Volkov. Watch this space. All right, um, let's go back to our second theme of the day. Our first themes have been China and the McDonald's, and our third one, which is export control. Let's talk about that, Tom. Tell me more about export control issues right now. So export control, you know, I started, uh, I talked about them a little bit um, and highlighted um, that uh, top commerce, de commerce department official has said that uh, he expects more big ticket fines. <coughs> Excuse me, this comes to us from the Wall Street Journal, the Risk and Compliance Journal. Uh, we have saw some massive fines and penalties last year, um, and we had uh, Seagate, and prior to that, we had Huawei. Uh, I think um, we're getting ready to see, when people start talking about FCPA size fines, I think we're going to see uh, very large fines, and I think it could be we could have some in the hundreds of millions up to a billion if they're seriousness serious enough uh, because the this administration wants to make clear export controls is a major national security issue for the United States. All right. So, Tom, I'm a compliance officer. I've got limited bandwidth, limited people. I'm hearing that export control is going to get FCPA style fines. I'm hearing sanctions is the new FCPA. Do I shift priorities now based on these recent proclamations or do I stay the course? What do you think? I think what you do is you elevate your export control officer who has been at a windowless. Sad uh, job. Task, <laughs> uh, you know, for the past 20 years, uh, you bring them up to the light of day and say, what do you need? And you start screening the people you're doing business with. Export control 
is largely a, an exercise about what you're shipping. And that's well known because uh, the Bureau of Information Standards, BIS, in the Department of Commerce publishes book which tells you all of that it's highly technical you need an engineer's degree to interpret it i have tried yes. uh, for my sins i was once an export control director so i understand um but then it's where is it going who are you selling it to who's the end user are there transshipments and those are all basic due diligence questions and the thing christy that really strikes me is these are questions you probably should be asking anyway about your sales model. Who is it going to? Who's the end user? Oh, I had my biggest shipment ever to Dubai to someone I'd never done business before. Hmm. Gee, I wonder where that might go, you hmm. know, or Russia. Uh, hopefully you're not doing anything that's getting into Russia, but you can see the government's interest in this. And I think that export control, um, with whether it's a reallocation of your due diligence capabilities or other, you can you can upgrade and uplift your capability, but absolutely you have to pay attention to this. Yeah, I find that the particularly painful area of compliance and I've never been an expert in it and never will be. I can just go ahead and declare that. Um, all right, so let's move on to some friendlier skies, shall we? And mm. talk about uh, what frequent flyer miles, I hope you got some today, Tom, on your flight. Uh, have to do with money laundering. Well, plenty if you are moving money between the UK and Dubai for nefarious purposes. So this story came to us from the street and it focuses on the fascinating case of an organized ring of money launderers with a penchant for Emirates Airlines. And you can't blame them really. Emirates is known as one of the most luxurious airlines in the world. One that I haven't flown yet. I am definitely on that list. So I uh, it turns out that Emirates has a really big luggage allowance for first class passengers, which it turns out can be used to transport cash in luggage. So how were these money laundering mules found? Well, in addition to DNA and fingerprints found on bags of money, always useful, the British National Crime Agency found one of the ringleaders frequent flyer accounts, which had racked up miles in a deeply unusual way in a rapid fashion. So they also found miles linked to the couriers, the mules who uh, for whom the flights were booked. And the British authorities found, this is amazing, that uh, one of the people in the criminal ring was able to transport three million pounds, about four million dollars on two trips between London and Dubai. And that another one of them was able to bring four million pounds, about five and a third million dollars using 12 suitcases during three trips. That is some very heavy luggage, Tom. I mean, who knew that your frequent flyer miles could be used against you? Well, Emirates is a great airline. Um, <laughs> everyone should fly it and you should fly into Dubai. But just remember when you land there at midnight and they say the temperature is down to 100, they mean it. Celebrate. It's down to 100. All right, Tom, I have an answer to the question posed by your last article, and I feel it strongly, but go ahead. Go ahead, ask the question. What does this author think? Sure. So we had an article about, is it time now for a federal data privacy law? Well, the answer to that's yes. But go back to our earlier discussion about this wonderful bipartisan effort from the U.S. Congress around Uyghur forced labor and other forced labor in China. Well, unfortunately, that bipartisanship ended. 
when it comes to federal data privacy. And frankly, I think it's because there are many disparate interests around data privacy in the United States. Obviously, individuals have an interest in data privacy, uh, but not the interest that perhaps individuals in the uh, EU or the Great or United Kingdom have. Uh, employers have a much stronger lobby in the United States and are able to uh, probably probably fight uh, any type of uh, federal data privacy law. The uh, interestingly, um, I think it was Amazon was fined yesterday or yesterday in the EU for um, keeping metrics on how long it took employees to scan packages, how long their breaks were. Well, that's standard in the United States, uh, and it has been for a long, long time. And uh, I guess I'm not offended by that, uh, but they certainly were offended in the EU, and they said not only is it it, we're going to fine you, it's illegal, and you have to stop. Well, that just really shows you the difference. Um, California, of course, is leading the United States in the discussion with uh, several different uh, consumer protection data privacy laws and others. And the patchwork and quilt work could literally be 50 different rules and regulations. And it's incredibly tough for people like us to advise our clients. uh, When you cross the state line from Louisiana to Texas, you're under a different data privacy regime. So, you know, this type of issue just screams for a national debate and a national consensus in a law, but I cannot see this Congress doing anything. So, Tom, the actual article's title is, Will 2024 Finally Be the Year for Federal Data Privacy Law in the United States? No, it won't. There was some hope in 2022, and there was draft legislation, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act, but guess what? That fell apart. It's an election year. Heck no, we're getting nothing out of that. So that's what I have to say about that. Shall we go, Tom, to where you are now? Is it time for Florida man? Is it time? And you are not this Florida man. I don't think you will be anything like this Florida man. Are you ready to handle Florida in Florida, Tom? And meet Florida man. (laughs) Meet Florida man. Okay. So here we go. This one is a good one. It comes to me uh, from Fox 35 Orlando, my very favorite Florida news station because they publish all these fantastic stories. Uh, What has our Florida man been up to? Well, it starts as many good Florida man uh, stories start, and that is at Walmart. So uh, 28-year-old Cody Clements was surprised to find a cell phone left in the Walmart bathroom. Now, naturally, instead of picking it up and dropping it off at Lost and Found, he used it to call in a bomb threat against the store from inside the store's bathroom. Uh, when deputies called the phone back, Mr. Clements answered the phone ominously saying, tick tock, tick tock, before hanging up. So Mr. Clements failed to consider that security footage shows the phone's o- owner walking in and walking out of the bathroom, showing Mr. Clements walking in and that the police could track where the cell phone was. Uh, our Florida man was detained. And when asked why he'd made these bomb threats, he said, He saw people making those calls on TikTok and was following the trend. So Florida man, TikTok, TikTok, time is up for you. Sorry for that. Well, I'm not sure what more I can say, except that I'm Tom Fox. (laughs) Thank you. I'm Christy Granthart. Join us next time on Two Gurus Talk Compliance. As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, this month, 
the sponsor of the Compliance Podcast Network is Ethico. Ethico provides compliance champions like yourself with an ethics and compliance optimization system built to turn goals and guidelines into real ROI for your program. To learn more, go to ethico.com backslash CPN. Two Gurus Talk Compliance is now the award-winning Two Gurus Talk Compliance, having been awarded a prestigious Communicators Award in 2023. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. If you're looking for something different in the realm of compliance, how about the intersection of Sherlock Holmes and compliance? If so, check out my new series, The Adventures in Compliance, where I'm going through every Sherlock Holmes short story and novel. This week, we began on The Return of Sherlock Holmes. Thanks for listening.